This podcast channel is about you, successful international entrepreneurs, successful expats, successful investors, sponsored by HCJ Contacts. Okay, I believe that we are now live. Good evening, everyone. And good morning to those joining us from the US, but good evening to most of you who are in Australia. So welcome to HTJ.Taxes live stream. Today we are talking about US taxes for expats in Australia. Uh, two of my colleagues in Australia were due to join me, but they, uh, they, they're unable to do so because of that virus, which, you know, which we cannot name. Otherwise, we get censored on certain platforms. So we wish them a speedy recovery. I uh, was WhatsApping them and they're okay. They're just uh, really under the weather. So anyway, onwards and forwards. Thank you for those who did submit uh, some questions and some comments that they would like to explore. Thank you for that, appreciate it. Uh, we'll address them more or less in the order in which we got them. Remember that this is not to be construed as advice. Uh, we are talking generally about general principles which you have brought to our attention and you'd like us to explore. So it's a general conversation. If you need specific advice, you need to be in touch with a tax professional that knows your situation inside out and whom you have engaged for that purpose. So without further ado, let's jump in. For those who did not get a chance to submit their questions, you can do so by typing them in the box below. If you are on Zoom, if you're on YouTube or one of the other platforms like LinkedIn, you can just type below the, the streaming image. So again, thank you and welcome. So first question, since moving to Australia years ago, we have started a few businesses. When we arrange to pay taxes, Will the IRS just need to know personal income or drawings, or would they need to see the financials of all the businesses? I'm assuming if they need to review the business financials, it will cost substantially more. What is the most cost-effective way to navigate this? So that's a great question, especially since many of our clients are entrepreneurs and business owners and investors. So our sweet spot, to be honest, really is with business owners and entrepreneurs, including those in crypto. And as opposed to just uh, regular expat employees. So just saying that this is a type of question that we face on an almost daily basis. So, so thanks for sharing this. If it is that you have, uh, you're in Australia, you are US exposed, you have a US passport or green card and you have invested in businesses in Australia, New Zealand, or somewhere else in Southeast Asia, they may need to be reported on your tax return. So they'll be reported, as you pointed out, they'll be reported on your personal tax returns to the extent you get a distribution from it. So that's if you take out dividends, if you got some consulting fees, or uh, if you sold it and you, you made some gains on the upside, capital gains. So yes, that will need to be reported. So that, that amount, that much is clear, right? And of course, you won't be double taxed, and that's because you get to offset taxes that you would have paid in Australia against the U.S. tax liability. And, and since, generally speaking, Australia taxes tend to be higher, the, the offset is quite effective, and the U.S. tax liability is considerably lowered or eliminated. You knew this already. So let's cut to the chase, right? What about reporting the actual companies? So if it is that your share of value or voice, and this is um, being very, very, very specific, value or voice. So I'm not just talking about if you have shares in the company, but in terms of ec an equity stake. So if it is that you are, uh, you know, you've, 
bought debt, you have bonds or you have some sort of debt uh, structure, or you use a nominee and someone holds shares in your behalf or some entity, for example, a trust, which is quite popular in Australia and we get to later. So if it is your share value of voice exceeds 10%, then yes, you would need to declare the existence of that entity on your tax return on the form 5471. And the, the actual investment going in will be in a form 926. And the, the, you know, the financials of that company, the income statement and the balance sheet, as well as uh, any other US shareholders would be on the 5471, right? So 10% or more. So the answer is yes. Because Australia is a relatively high tax jurisdiction from a corporate tax point of view, we won't necessarily talk about the guilty rules, which I know some of you were interested in, uh, that would be triggered in a lower tax jurisdiction like Singapore, Hong Kong, or Labuan in Malaysia. So we'll, we'll park that aside for, for now. So the point is, in terms of reporting, yes, once you hold 10% or more. Now, if it is that your person, your foreign financial assets exceed a certain threshold, and that threshold would vary by whether you file jointly or singly, you may trigger Form 8938, in which case, even though your interest in that company may be less than 10%, it would be reportable. But in that case, you're not reporting the financials for that company. All you're doing is reporting that, hey, I have shares in company XYZ and this is the approximate value. So hopefully that answers your question. Now, there is there are ways. So the US has a number of anti-deferral rules and the way they came about is because people were investing, Americans were investing abroad outside of the US and they were doing so in a tax advantaged way. They were able to defer paying taxes until certain key liquidity events. And that made those investments uh, more compelling than domestic investments. And it also made tax avoidance easier. So. For a number of reasons, there are a number of anti-deferral rules. I hinted at one of them, which is guilty, which is when you invest in a corporate structure that's in a low tax, a relatively low tax jurisdiction in, in the neighborhood. So Singapore, where I'm based, or Hong Kong, or Lapuan, right? So that's typically, or Cook Islands, or, you know, Vanuatu. So basically, low or no tax jurisdiction, you need to be thinking about guilty. Now, if it is you've invested in a company outside uh, where it triggers something called subpart F. So you may invest in a company in one jurisdiction, but it actually does business in another jurisdiction outside of the US. And you need to talk to your, to your tax professional about that. That may also trigger the anti-deferral rules. Or if it is that you have a holding company structure or a company that mainly derives passive income. So it's not an operating company per se. The returns on that company in the form of dividends, interest, uh, you know, rental, you know, rental income streams. So you may have what is called a PFIC. So whether it's guilty, subpart F or PFIC, those are the three more popular anti-deferral rules. And what that means is, and this is where I think you were really going with this question you were really asking, are there situations where the company has a US tax liability, even though the company is incorporated in Australia in one of those other jurisdictions that I mentioned? And the answer can be yes, if one of those anti-deferral rules are triggered. So in summary, typically you're correct. Once there's a distribution, from the company to you, whether it's in the form of dividends, interest, consulting fees, or whatever, that's definitely taxable on your US return. And of course, you get credits for whatever you would have paid in Australia. If it is that you trigger you trigger ownership stakes in terms of not just ownership, right, but share value of voice, 10% uh, in excess, of, you know, 10% or more, and definitely when it's over 50%. You trigger control foreign corp rules, but basically when your ownership threshold is passed, then that re triggers reporting 
on your tax returns on the 5471 that I mentioned or 8865 if it's a foreign partnership. So definitely. And what you fear the most, sorry to be the bearer of bad news, if it is you trigger one of those three anti-deferral rules that I mentioned, the guilty, the PFIC, or the subpart F, then that foreign company's profits may be taxable on your personal tax return. So again, you need to sit with your tax advisor who understands uh, both the Australia side and the US side because they, they work in tandem with each other and, and, and do some tax planning. If it is, as you've mentioned, you've been doing this for a few years, then you may need to retroactively address some of the omissions if there are omissions. Uh, for those whose non-compliance was deemed to be non-willful, then the streamline may work for you. Speak to your tax advisor to make sure streamlined is an amnesty and all, but name where you go back three years on your U.S. tax return because three years is statute of limitations, and you declare whatever it is you missed out. You put it on those tax returns, and the IRS agrees to waive any penalties, civil and criminal. If there's if there are taxes due, then interest will be accrued, obviously. But it's a good deal because the civil and criminal penalties are waived on the streamline. So you need to speak to your tax professional about that. So the look back will be three years. So right now, I guess it'll be 2019, 18, right? If it is that those companies that you've invested in, you have signature authority over their bank accounts, even though you are not the beneficial owner of those corporate bank accounts they are reportable on your FBARs, which will be your foreign bank account report. And if you have not done that, part of the streamline allows you to look back for six years on your FBARs and make those declarations. Again, just to emphasize, the FBARs are not a tax calculation. It is simply a reporting requirement. However, they... However, the penalty for not disclosing those foreign accounts can be quite aggressive. So for something where there's absolutely no downside because it's not part of any tax calculation, uh, please make sure that your FBARs are up to date. Okay, hope that helps. Moving on to the next question. Okay, all right, someone is based in the US. I'm based in the US and my company has offered me a transfer to the Australian subsidiary. I have the option of being tax equalized. What does that mean? Should I accept it? Well, so the tax equalizations mean, it means different things to different companies. And uh, you'd need to speak to the, the payroll or, you know, the, your, I guess your line manager just to get the specifics of your company. However, generally speaking, the principle of tax equalization is that you are, when you take an expat assignment, so an assignment outside of your home market, you will be no better, no worse off than had you stayed at home. So even though you'd be based in Australia, you'll be paid and your taxes will be based or be calculated more or less. Uh, it's kind of like this esoteric kind of calculation, kind of gets confusing, but you should be no better, no worse off than if you have remained in your home market. If you remain, if you stay back in the US. So it tends to work to your advantage when you go into a higher tax jurisdiction like Scandinavia or Australia in your case, in that you are spared to some extent the pain of paying a higher tax bracket. But it often works against you if you subsequently get transferred to a lower tax jurisdiction like your Singapore or your Hong Kong because then you are stuck at your home base tax rate and you don't get to enjoy the benefit that comes with being in a lower tax jurisdiction. So again, it varies by company and you may want to get professional advice. Bear in mind that the team within your company or the accountant that your company re recommends, he or she works for your company, not for you. So it's in their best interest. Typically what we see is they would advocate what's best for the company and not necessarily what's best for you. So you may want 
to, to seek independent tax advice. And what firms such as ours, I mean, you don't have to come to us, just Google and whoever comes up and you feel comfortable with, you can have a conversation with them. And what we typically would do, what any tax team would typically do is run a simulation. Okay, show me your most recent tax return. Let's assume that you got that in whatever the jurisdiction is, let's say it's Australia, and what will be your take-home pay to see if you're better or worse? Or what is the cash in your pocket, money in your bank account at the end of each month or at the end of each year? So by running that scenario, you can compare apples to apples and see whether it makes sense for you. I hope that helps. Next question. And again, I'm just dealing with this in the order in which it's um, someone just... Okay, yeah, someone is typing below. So just continue to type below and I'll just address them in the order in which they scroll up to me, right? So I'm looking at my other laptop where the questions are scrolling. So I'm a dual citizen, US and Australia, and we have an Australia Family Trust, which is of course pretty popular tax planning tool in Australia, right? Should I report it to the US on my US tax returns? What if I've never done so before? Well. The answer is undoubtedly, absolutely, <laughs> yes. It is reportable on your US tax return. Uh, absolutely it is. And to the second part of your question, if you've not done so before, as I mentioned on, in response to the previous question, like two questions ago, you would want to consider together with your chosen tax professional, of course, uh, exploring the streamlined compliance procedure. Streamlined is an Amnesty Norbert name, but it allows you to um, come forward to the IRS, come forward before they figure things out on their own. So, and you correct the past three years of your tax returns. And you, in this case, you would declare the existence of the family trust and any distributions you may receive from, from that family trust. And if that family trust has a bank account, which you may have a signature authority over, then you may want to correct your prior FBARs or your foreign bank accounts as well. So definitely you would need to declare the bank accounts attached to that trust, the existence of that trust, any assets you would have transferred to that trust and any distribution you may have received from that trust. So I would urge you to speak with your chosen, uh, chosen tax professional as soon as possible. Next question. I'm a musician, so a little bit different. I'm a musician, Australian musician, and I have a, a US type visa, okay? That's a visa for foreign entertainers, right? So normally I fly back to Australia in between gigs. But now I prefer to I prefer to remain in the U.S. because of you know quarantine issues on return to Australia. What are the tax implications? So, ordinarily speaking, from a, a U.S. tax perspective, you know, tax rules are different from immigration rules. What that means is that um, the immigration rules to so the visa uh, that you use to enter is less important than the tax rules would speak to the amount of time you spend on US soil or US airspace. So it sounds as if you may or you have triggered SS, you may have triggered substantial presence. So I'm talking about section 7701 of the US tax code. So by virtue of you spending a certain amount of time in the US, it, just like Australia is 183 days, but the calculation is a bit more um, yeah, esoteric and in the sense that there's a look back period of uh, a couple of years as well. So you speak to your tax professional. I, I won't get into the calculation right now, but it involves looking at your present year, which is 2020 plus uh, 2021, sorry, plus 2020 plus 2019, right? And it's a ratio of 2020 and a ratio of 2019. So one third and one six. And once you add it up and it exceeds 183 days, so once you hit a certain threshold in terms of time in the US, you will be deemed to be 
U.S. tax resident and subject to taxes and your worldwide income. Because as an, an entertainer, what you would have experienced before when you're just flying in and out, before the, the present situation, of course, you would have been paid by the promoter and they would withhold and they might give you a form 1042S to demonstrate that they will withheld a certain amount and remitted that to the Internal Revenue Service. Sometimes they withhold too much and then you would file a non-resident tax return to get a refund based on the Australia-US tax treaty if it applies. But right now, if it is that you are not returning to Australia in between gigs, then you may trigger a substantial presence. So you'll be US tax resident and subject to taxes in your worldwide income. So that's, you know, obviously it may have implications depending on your, on your earnings in Australia itself and uh, that being exposed to US tax system. So I'll suggest again that you sit with your preferred advisor and get some planning done. It may not be too late. So have that conversation. Next question. <laughs> I'm an American working in Sydney. Which return should I typically do first, Australia, US? So yeah. Uh, well, you're based in Australia. So typically, and then the Australia tax year is different from the US. In the US, it's a calendar year, right? So you would typically work with your, uh, well, in an ideal world, your U.S. and your Australia tax teams are under the same roof, obviously. But if it is that you, you're doing them yourself or you have two separate teams that don't necessarily know each other, speak to each other, it, it makes it a bit more complicated. And typically, just by virtue of the timing differences, you would typically start with the Australian one first. And, uh, and assuming that you, sit, you are employed, so you're working as an employee in, in Australia. So then Australia has first bite of that cherry. So then Australia typically is the, the first one and then the tax credits are applied to your US tax returns after. So again, in an ideal world in tandem, but if you're dealing with two separate teams, so it's just you by yourself trying to figure it out, typically you'll start with you, the Australian one first. So hope that helps. Uh, okay. I now live in Bali, Bali, Indonesia since 2020. I'm dual Australia, US. So this person is an Australian citizen and a US citizen, and they're based in Indonesia, in Bali. How do I sever tax residency with Australia? So you would need to speak with your Australian tax professional uh, to get uh, advice on that. So I can introduce you to one of my colleagues in, in Sydney or in Melbourne, and you can have that conversation with them. Or if you do have one, you can check it out, or you can just go to the ATO website. But of course the ATO website can be a bit cryptic sometimes, right? So, the, the reason why I say that you probably want to get advice is because it can be a bit complicated to sever tax residency as an Australian citizen. Uh, and by merely spending time in Bali, that does not necessarily mean that you have that you're Australia tax non-resident because there's certain specific steps that you needed, you should have done to alert the ATO as to your new status. And then in, uh, in Indonesia, in Bali, you should be doing certain things to prove that you, if, if there's an inquiry, if there's some sort of question from the ATO, you would need to produce certain documentation to prove that you're a bona fide resident of Bali. So, you know, it's, uh, it, it can be a bit subjective sometimes. And, you know, on our website, if you go to hg.tax and one of the, we have over a thousand free articles on international tax issues. And I do go into the nuances of Australian tax residency. And I do quote some recent court cases that have shed a lot of light or made it even more complicated, depending on how you look at it, depending on your perspective. But essentially, you'd want to prove, the, the, the emphasis here is on proving that you're a bona fide resident of, of Indonesia, of Bali. So you would, you know, like 
a rental agreement. I'm not talking about Airbnb. I'm talking about a proper lease uh, for whatever your accommodation is. Um, ideally, I'd want to see you being Indonesia tax resident. Do you have a KITAS? Are you paying your Indonesian taxes? Where's your Indonesian tax return? So, you know, have you severed ties and your center of life is no longer in Australia? That you, you know, you've really put down roots in Bali, Indonesia. So it is nuanced. It is subjective. I highly recommend that you, you seek advice just to make sure that you're on the right page, both for Australia and for Bali and Indonesia. Uh, your U.S. tax status more or less remains unchanged in that the U.S. is going to tax you worldwide income no matter where you are. The only way around that is to give up your U.S. passport. So business as usual from a U.S. perspective. Hope that helps. Moving down the list. Okay, I'm a dual citizen again. I'm Australia, Australia citizen and a U.S. citizen. And I have one, two, three, four, five, six questions. This person has six questions. So they're asking about the superannuation. I think there's no live stream on U.S. Australia tax that is complete without talking about the super. Everybody's, you know, because it's such an important part of most people's portfolio, right? So it's, it's natural. It makes sense. So, okay. Uh, contributions to my Australia super taxable to the U.S. They don't receive the same tax deferred treatment as if you were in the U.S. and contributed to like a 401k or some sort of IRA, right? So it does not reduce your U.S. taxable income as it would potentially reduce your Australia taxable income. So yes, uh, contributions are taxable as if, you know, it really makes no difference. You don't get that tax-free treatment. I know in some, and then people are going to ask me, well, what about the treaty? What about the Australia-U.S. tax treaty? And yes, it is a tax treaty, but it is not as specific as, let's say, the U.S.-U.K. tax treaty, which means that some of the contributions to qualified uh, U.S.-U.K. pension vehicles do get that tax-deferred treatment. So the, the wording of the U.S.-U.K. treaty is different from the wording of the U.K., the U.S.-Australia tax treaty. So uh, generally speaking, Unfortunately, no, the contribution, you, there's no tax benefit. You don't get to defer paying tax on the income. You don't get to reduce your taxable income to the US by contributing to an Australia super. Next question, is growth in the fund taxable, uh, is, is growth in the fund taxable income to the US? Uh, hmm. So while the pension is growing in the retirement fund, the, the treaty should protect the growth within the fund. So generally speaking, the growth is not taxable. However, because there's always a but, right? There's always an exception. That was in the detail. Unless distributions are being taken or the, the person, or if you're a highly compensated uh, employee, a highly compensated individual, a highly compensated employee, an HCE. So if you're getting a distribution or if you're an HCE, then the growth may be taxable. So again, you may want to sit with a U.S. tax professional to go to your, your unique circumstances to see what the correct tax treatment is. And if the correct tax treatment doesn't work for you, maybe you, there's something that you guys can do to mitigate and to do some tax planning around that. Okay, and yeah, so I can't answer that before. Are distributions taxable to the U.S.? Yes, generally they are taxable uh, with some exceptions. So, and plus you get foreign tax credits to reduce it. But generally speaking, yes, distributions are taxable. Uh, but if it is that you are gonna invoke the treaty and exclude certain gains within, uh, because there are certain, there are circumstances where um, there will be some sort of tax mitigation by invoking the treaty, then you, you sit with your tax team and work out what section of the treaty that will be, and you would be for, you would be declaring that under Form 8833 or treaty disclosure. So generally speaking, they are taxable. There are certain circumstances. I don't want to get too detailed into super. If 
if you do, if, you know, I look at the questions after and if people come back to that, then I'll take a deeper dive. But generally speaking, the, the yes, they are taxable. There are circumstances where that tax can be reduced or eliminated by looking at the treaty or the nature of the distribution itself. And in that case, it needs to be properly disclosed so you can get those tax breaks. I'll leave it there. Okay, how is your super reported on the US return? Uh, it depends. So it definitely in your FBARs, as I mentioned before, the foreign bank account report. Uh, if you hit those thresholds, which I mentioned before, the form 8938, which discloses your foreign financial assets, will disclose your super as well. And depending on the nature of your investments within the super, it may trigger some additional forms such as PFIX and stuff like that. So depends. Okay, moving on. Scrolling down, scrolling down. Yes, I see your questions. Okay. What strategies help with minimizing tax on U.S. retirement funds to Australia? Any any, is there any difference if I pull it out monthly versus once a year? So, so this person is living in Australia and they're receiving retirement funds from the United States. Right. Okay. So then we're looking at the article 18 of the US Australia tax treaty. The answer is yes. Under certain circumstances, uh, there would be an opportunity to, to minimize the tax. So first of all, there should not be double tax because at the very least, uh, depending on whatever investment vehicle you're tapping into, you get foreign tax credits, right? So you're not going to be taxed twice in the same income. Not going to happen. Very unusual, but typically doesn't happen. Now, uh, under certain circumstances, the the treaty would allow you to have the income only taxed in one of the two jurisdictions, so the other jurisdiction won't tax it at all. So again, it depends on whether it's a you know like a company pension plan or social security or whatever the case may be. So you'd want to sit with your chosen tax professional and go through the various types of retirement income that you're drawing on and, and remitting into Australia from the US and see how, we, uh, how you can work to leverage Article 18 of the, the treaty to minimize the tax. Because I think it's only, no one should be paying more than their fair share of taxes, you know? So no more than the, the taxes that you're legally required to pay. You want, you want to sit with a professional, you're going to look at Article 18. The answer is yes. You, at the very least, you will not be taxed twice. Best case scenario, only one jurisdiction can touch it. The other one won't. So I'll leave that with you. Okay, you have two more questions. I'm seeing the other questions. Uh, are there strategies for U.S. capital gains in Australia? Right. Depends on the nature of the capital gains, but at the very least, as I mentioned before, uh, you will get foreign tax credits. So the income will not usually be taxed twice, especially if you sit in Australia, right? So the if, if it's a gain arising from selling shares, like if you sell your Tesla or your Apple shares or whatever in the US, the US, well, it's a US CITES asset, so it'll be taxed there first. And then you get the credits against whatever the Australia tax liability is. So it may be worth, let's see, let me just have a, just a quick look. Yeah, it may be worth, depending on the nature of the, the asset being sold, whether Article 13 of the Australia US tax treaty may be invoked. So, yeah. So it may be worth sitting with your tax professional to see whether Article 13 could uh, be leveraged to re further reduce whatever tax liability you may have and perhaps make it only taxable in one jurisdiction as well. So you'd want to sit with a tax professional to have a look at that. Next one, estate taxes, same person. This is the last of your questions, at least so far, unless you want to type something else below. Estate taxes for Australian kids of US citizens related to US assets, federal or, or possibly state 
Well, you, you're very succinct in that question. So I'll need to try and interpret what it is you're asking about. I'll start off by saying that from a US tax perspective, estate taxes are not levied on the, the beneficiaries or those inheriting the assets. It'll be on the estate itself, right? So assuming the estate will be yours because you are in Australia with some US CITES assets. Uh, it may, so the, the US CITES assets would typically be subject to US estate taxes. So when on, on the unfortunate uh, moment of your, your passing, then whoever your the responsible party would be, the administrator or whatever, your attorney would be filling out the returns and filling out the requisite paperwork on, on behalf of your estate. And if any taxes are due, it would need to be settled by the estate typically before the assets are passed on to the kids. Now, uh, a determination would need to be made by a professional so qualified to see whether you are US domiciled for transfer tax purposes or Australia domiciled, or you're not US domiciled, so either US or not. So the tax code is silent on that. So typically we look at case law. And what case law says is that the, the fact patterns that the judge will pay attention to would be intent plus deliberate action. So when you left the US to move to Australia, was it your, I mean, an extreme example would be, did you have a going away party? Did you stream it on Facebook Live? And you said, US, goodbye, I'm out. I'm never coming back. I'm done. You know, and you slick, you sold most of your stuff. Obviously, you kept some assets, which you're talking about now, but for the most part, you severed ties uh, with the US and you made Australia the center of your life. And in a situation like that, yeah, you may be deemed to not be US domiciled because you've severed ties, you've gone. The alternative, the opposite would be well, you know, when I left the US, I kept, you know, like I kept membership with my, some of my social clubs. You know, I fly back every year for certain key events with my friends. And, you know, I can't, I probably still have the family home. It may not even be rented out because I, I just want a place that I can stay when I come back to the US. And, you know, again, looking at the fact patterns, maybe a judge would say, hmm, you know what, you really did not intend to permanently leave the U.S. I mean, the U.S. is still the center of your life, right? Then you'd be deemed U.S. domiciled for, for the purposes of transfer taxes. Why is this important? This ties back to the, the question that you've asked on the estate taxes. If it is you're not domiciled in the U.S., then the, the threshold for those estate taxes are, are lower. It's actually something like $60,000 or something like that. So it's, it's pretty low. Above that, estate taxes at the federal level. I'm going to forget the state because you didn't mention what state you're in. So at the federal level, estate taxes will be due above that uh, very low threshold. If it is that you're not domiciled in the U.S. I mean, you, you know, uh, if it is, you've, you, you know, you've severed all ties in your Australia. You haven't, you're in Australia, you have not looked back. So therefore, the potential estate tax liability on those U.S. CITES assets would be higher than if you were deemed to be U.S. tax domiciled. And then you will right now, the threshold is around $11 million. So assuming that your assets are less than a million, $11 million, then that lifetime exclusion would comfortably cover everything. And at the federal level, there should be no estate taxes due. So tax planning time. You need to sit with your professional and go through your, your situation, your unique situation. Are you still tax domicile in the U.S. for the purpose of transfer taxes? Or are you not? And, and, you know, I, you need to factor in what are your Australian income, what are your Australian assets as well? You know, if everything is above 11 million, then, 
you may be subject to state taxes uh, on your Australian assets as well. So you need to sit with someone, go through your situation, see what position given your assets, your portfolio, which position works in your favor. And perhaps you can make some adjustments to your lifestyle to either be domicile in the US for transfer tax purposes or not, depending on what works for you. So it's tax planning time. It is estate planning time. So hope that helps. Next question. Uh, blah, blah, blah. Australian e-commerce company that sells mostly to the US with, you give a number, but I think that's confidential. So let's just say you in, you're doing revenue in the seven figure space, right? You have a third party warehouse in the US, but all your staff is in Australia. Okay. You're asking about what your US tax liability or your US tax responsibilities would be. So you're asking what IRS taxes you'd be liable for. It starts really with the state because you have, from what you've disclosed here, you know, of course you need to seek advice. But just for the general conversation that we're having right now, you have no boots on the ground in the US. You, if that is true, then you should have no permanent establishment. Uh, which is uh, a term used uh, tr uh, term used when uh, an entity, a foreign entity, may trigger tax a taxable presence in a foreign jurisdiction, right? But you have the responsibility for sales and use tax, which is like a VAT or GST, right? So you your first uh, your first concern would be around your sales and use tax liability. How do you do that? So again, sit with your chosen tax professional who has ex expertise and experience in US sales and use taxes for foreigners. And they'll probably wanna recommend that you do a nexus study. Uh, they'll know what it means if this is their thing. They'll wanna do a nexus study with you. They'll wanna see what your sales activity has been across the US, I mean, the US, yeah, there are 50 states, but there are over 13,000 sales and use tax jurisdictions because each state is divided into different use tax jurisdictions. Each would, you know, sometimes it's different. Uh, it, they, the tax rate changes and it's different. The reporting frequency changes. Some of them are monthly, some of them are every six months, some of, you know, it varies. And some of them are manual reporting and some of them are automated, right? So it, it really varies. And the thresholds, so they ballpark, when you do your Googling and you found someone who claims to be an expert, they will say, well, broadly speaking, you're looking at $100,000 or 200 units, whichever comes first, that triggers economic nexus with the state, uh, with the jurisdiction. And you need to be looking at whether you have a sales and use tax reporting requirement. Yeah, but some of them, that's generally speaking, some of them are 100 units or $50,000. Some of them are 50 units. It really depends. So you'd want to get a proper Nexus study done to see what your exposure is. Now, if you're on seven figures into the US, chances are you didn't start this business yesterday. You've been doing this for a while. So then the next question will be, well, what is the, the liability that's outstanding for your past transactions. And then you, you need to work that out. And then the, some states have, remember we spoke about Streamline in response to one of the earlier questions as a way, it's an amnesty in all but name, but for the federal level, when it comes to sales and use tax, there's something called uh, voluntary disclosure programs or you know, VDPs or VDAs, depending on what state it is, right? So are you, should you go for voluntary disclosure? You know, should you go for voluntary disclosure uh, and disclose these past transactions that you've been doing in these states? Should you? And and retroactively, you know, do the right thing, confess, fess up, and pay any taxes that you. Again, this is a very controversial area. You've probably been doing some research. And when you Google some guys say, no, forget it. You know, just 
cut ties, you know, and form a new entity or, or whatever, and just, oh, don't even do that, just look forward. But, you know, I, I'm super conservative. So if you come and talk to us, I'm, I'm going to be completely honest. We are really conservative. So we say, you know what, just be honest, always be honest, always, you know, just do the right thing. Then you, you then no sleepless nights, you have nothing to worry about because you've done the right thing. And I challenge, I, I, I tell my clients or people that come asking, uh, I issue them a challenge. That tax professional that told you don't worry about filing for the past and just ignore it and just go forward, let them put, challenge them to put it in writing. Say, yeah, I'll pay your consulting fee, put that in writing. They won't because they know it's wrong. So up to you, but that's a, a decision you need to make. And then once you've dealt with the past, of course, you deal with the future. Make sure you've registered with all the states in which you have economic nexus or economic exposure and file and pay your sales and use taxes accordingly. So again, three steps. Find a, a tax team that you're comfortable with and you're based in Australia. So hopefully someone who understands Australia and the US. You embark on a nexus study. Where are you exposed? Make a decision as to how you treat the historical exposure. And then you position yourself proactively to minimize your tax responsibilities going forward. Hope that helps. We link blah, blah, blah. You're asking about the tax treaty. So the Australia-US tax treaty is really an agreement at the federal level. So it doesn't cover state taxes, nor does it cover sales and use taxes. However, <clears throat> You have a third-party warehouse you mentioned. In some states, and again, this is something you discuss with your tax professional, by virtue of you having physical nexus, even though it's a third-party warehouse, it's an independent, no connection to you. That may, aside from sales and use tax, obvious, but that may trigger a state tax requirement. It may, so that's something to pay attention to. It may trigger a state income tax requirement so it may and you know just just a heads up so it, it may so that's a conversation you'd want to have with your professional as well uh in terms of what forms to use okay so at the federal level at the sales and use tax level well obviously when you sit with the tax team that you've chosen to work with they'll walk you through the forms that that's that's okay now at the federal level you may want to file a protective return. So even though you believe that you have no nexus with the US, as you know, the US is a very litigious society generally, and our tax authority, uh, they're pretty aggressive. They're internal revenue service, just like the ATO. So you're, you're accustomed to jurisdictions that take uh, tax pretty seriously, right? So the IRS is pretty serious. So what many tax advisors advise is you form, you file a, a protective return. So this is where you, I mean, you believe that your activities did not give rise to ECI or effectively connected income. So yes, you don't think you have any nexus and you didn't trigger any federal responsibilities yet. If in the future, the tax office determines that, you know, yes, you did. We've looked at your case and for some strange reason, whatever it is, they decide that yes, you are exposed. It allows you to preserve the right to deductions and credits later on, just in case. And I, I admitted, you know, our team, we're super conservative. We, you know, we just want to err on the side of caution at all times. You know, it's better to have it and not need it than to need it and you don't have it. So, file a protective return. So just in case years down the line, your, your Australian company, which has been selling into the US e-commerce, uh, whether it's on Walmart or Amazon, whatever it is you're doing, um, just in case you at least have the right to mitigate whatever the tax bill would come up to be by applying deductions and credits. So just, just a recommendation. Okay. Sorry, I'm just, I'm seeing more questions popping up. So I'm just scrolling, scrolling, scrolling. 
some somebody's advertising uh okay tony thanks for advertising your your service whatever okay so we are dual citizens residing in australia with assets still in the us okay yeah i i, I you send this you send this to me twice so uh i hope my response uh addressed your your, your question I'm switching to one of the other platforms now just to see if anyone has been asking questions on that. So I'm switching to live. Nope, no questions on that. Okay, that's great. Wait, I'm going to check one more just to see if anyone else has been asking questions. One. Uh, thanks, Paul. Paul. Paul was saying, yeah, be careful uh, about signing anything related to tax equalization. Yeah, Paul is, Paul knows his stuff. Yeah, absolutely correct. Okay. Uh, thanks for your questions. Thanks for those of you who joined us. Uh, if it is that one of your colleagues or friends missed this live stream, it will be available on YouTube, SoundCloud, iTunes, Amazon, wherever you get your favorite podcasts. We, we, we post it as well as on our website, hg.tax. And again, on our website, hg.tax, we have over a thousand articles on tax-related topics, and we have hundreds of videos as well on international tax issues. So feel free to have a look around. If you have any questions, reach out to us. Thank you for joining us. We do this every week, different topic every week for future live streams and future events. Have a look at hj.tax. Have a good evening, everyone, and we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Here are four ways we can help you. Number one, sign up for free webinars on U.S. Expat Taxes and International Entrepreneur Taxes at www.htj.tax. Number two, Stream premium educational videos at www.htj.tax. Number three, contact us for tax optimization consult offer Zoom. Number four, high net worth. We can quote for doing your U.S. international taxes returns. Our books and upcoming event are available at htj.tax. Please subscribe like share and comment below email us at help at to engage us to advise on international tax or business matters